morning, church. Um, I just wanted to say Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers and the mother figures out there. Uh, today's Bible reading will come from Exodus chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 10. Exodus chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 10. These are the names of the son of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali. Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 in persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal surely with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and, all, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sephra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you, sh- but you shall let every daughter live. Chapter 2. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, the Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket and made a basket made of walrushes and daubed it with butamin and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go, 
So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of God. Morning, everybody. Uh, thank you, Shako. Thank you, Tikaledi, and to Rosie and Kate and Bronwyn and Sam from the cafe, who uh, you would have received, I hope, a little cheesecake on your way in. Thank you to Sam from the cafe for, for looking after our moms in that way. I know, Mom, I'm going to appeal to her to bless me with a cheesecake later, her little cheesecake. Um, but uh, thank you to all our ladies for for um, taking care of us in the service this morning. Here at church, we often say that we are a redeemed family of servants on mission, and if ever there was a book to show us what that actually means, it's the book of Exodus. Uh, Today we're starting a new series, Seven Sermons in Exodus 1 to 12. And to be quite honest with you, we could easily spend seven sermons on just the chapter that Chuck read for us. Uh, It is that rich. So I'm really excited. I hope you're excited. Uh, Before we go any further, let me just pray for us. Father, as always, uh, we have gathered to sit under the authority of your word. We pray that you will bless us, bring us to yourself, through your Son and in the power of your Spirit. Let us not leave here uh, unchanged, but please meet with us now, we pray. Amen. What do we have here in Exodus 1? I think you could look at it on three levels at least. The first level is the level of political economy. So here we have the fairly standard story of economic oppression where you have a powerful host nation that enslaves a vulnerable migrant population. As the immigrant population grows, it becomes a political threat. That The threat grows as the population grows. And so what you have in chapter 1 is a record of the strategies used to contain that threat. They are the typical strategies. Enslave the population. Weigh them down with a heavy workload. Not only by doing that do you extract free labor, but you also curb the population growth and you crush any spirit of rebellion that might emerge. Failing that, you use the power of state violence to coerce these people into submission. And failing that, you resort to ethnic propaganda and you get the local population, the resident population, to do your dirty work for you. These strategies have been around from the earliest times, from before Pharaoh, because they work. They work. But in Pharaoh's case, they didn't work. They were frustrated by a small, agile liberation movement, freedom fighters. We've seen this movie. 
That's the surface level. That's Exodus 1 at the surface level, political economy. The next level down is salvation history. That just means reading this for what it is, part of a larger biblical story. So let's do that because the text actually invites us to do that. The first word in Exodus isn't actually in your English Bible. The first word is and. And. You remember from high school grammar, I'm sure, and is a joining word. It's a connecting word. It connects what came before with what comes after. What came before Exodus? Come on, Sunday school. (laughs) What came before Exodus? Genesis. Wonderful. Genesis. The Explore course is paying off, Tina. All your hard work. Genesis. Where did Genesis end? It ended exactly where Exodus begins. Right? You remember? With Jacob and his family in Egypt. That's where Genesis ends. And then you have Exodus and referencing all of that. So what you have in the first seven verses of Exodus is the fulfillment of a promise that God made to Jacob at the end of Genesis. Genesis 46, I'll read it to you. Then God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Then in Exodus chapter 1 verse 7, we read that in Egypt, Jacob's descendants, the people of Israel, and I quote, were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And we think, wonderful, God is keeping his promises. Not quite. Why did God need to say to Jacob, do not be afraid to go down into Egypt? The answer is in a promise that God made to Jacob's father, Isaac. This is Genesis 26. I'll read again for you. And the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And now listen to the promise that God made to Jacob's grandfather, Abraham. This is Genesis 17. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Are you starting to hear some of the language? And I will make you into language and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. In the first seven verses of Exodus, God is fulfilling his promises, the promises he made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. The problem is, he's only fulfilling half the promise. Because you would have heard, God promised both a nation and a land. But not the land of Egypt, the land of Canaan. That's why Jacob would have feared going down to Egypt. Because it would have meant for him leaving the land of the promise. Jacob left the land with God's assurance and became a nation. And now the nation need a land. 
They were a nation, but they were a nation of immigrants in a foreign land. Only half the promise has been fulfilled. And then in verse 8, back in Exodus now, so keep Exodus open, Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, it gets even a little bit more complicated because you have this ominous threat to the promise. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The reason Israel were welcome in Egypt at all was because of Joseph, Jacob's son. If you're starting to get a little bit confused with the family tree, what we're talking about is a promise passed down through four generations. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph, under the providence of God, had risen to the right hand of Pharaoh, the right-hand man to the king of Egypt, and he had all the favor of the king of Egypt. But Joseph and his generation died. And now there's a new king. And with a new king comes a new program, new agenda, new ambitions. The way it's told in the Hebrew, the king didn't just forget Joseph. He just didn't feel Joseph was relevant. He didn't care about Joseph. Which makes that verse all the more ominous. The problem from this new king's point of view is in verse 9. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. The problem Pharaoh has is that God keeps his promises and his purposes prevail. So Pharaoh decides to work against the promises of God and against his purposes. This is verse 10. Come. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. Pharaoh's solution to the immigrant problem comes in three parts. The first part is hard labor. That's verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Israel built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Aristotle wrote this, uh, he, was, he was talking about how to preserve, how a tyrant should go about preserving power. This is what he writes, a tyrant must impoverish his subjects, the citizen and the people, keep them hard at work so that they are prevented from conspiring. The pyramids of Egypt afford an example of this policy, end of quote. See, Aristotle knew exactly what Pharaoh was doing. That's the political economy of the day. That's just how it worked. That was best practice, politically speaking. But in the case of Israel, something very strange happened. Verse 12. Look at verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. Pharaoh's very standard, very sensible rail politic, his sensible standard policy to break Israel actually had the opposite effect. And so he introduces part two of his solution to the immigrant problem. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. If it is a daughter, she shall live. This is state-sponsored abortion. It's actually a lot like the, the single-child policy policy. 
that China adopted in the 1980s. And it should have worked. But it didn't. It didn't because it was undermined by some low-level civil servants, by the chief nurses in the slave government. Why on earth would they disobey a direct order from the most powerful man in the world? Why would they do that? They knew the risks. They knew exactly what he was capable of. They did it because they feared their God more than they feared their king. Like part one, part two of Pharaoh's solution has the inverse effect, the opposite effect from what he's hoping. Verse 20, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. So the policy is designed to shrink the population, to crush their spirits. But the population is growing and are galvanized. The numbers are growing and they are strong in their spirit. Verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Literally, he built them houses. So there's irony here because Pharaoh forced the people to build cities. But God freely builds houses for the people. You've got a clash of leadership styles here. But it's no contest. God is winning. So Pharaoh, now in a state of desperation, he has one last roll of the dice, part three to his solution, full-blown infanticide. This time he's not using official state structures. Verse 22, any Egyptian who can get their hands on a male Hebrew baby must throw him into the Nile. Can you imagine the social chaos this policy causes? Just imagine the terror, the suspicion, that knock at the door, that knowing glance from your Egyptian neighbor, the total breakdown of trust takes us back to the darkest days of our own country's history. And it looks like Pharaoh has won this round. Because we don't read about Refugees fleeing to safety. We don't read about a guerrilla force that rises up to put an end to the cruelty and madness of this policy. All we hear is the story of one boy's escape. One boy. And that story is the hope of Israel, their only hope. And so it looks like the darkness has won. At least this round. That's salvation history. And it ends on an ambiguous note at best. But we can actually go deeper. And once again, the text invites us to go deeper. So we've read at the level of political economy, then salvation history, now theology. Now we look to what God is doing. This is the last level. The details of this story... What they do is they throw us back and they throw us forward to other parts of the story. And it's those connections that really show us what God is saying through Moses in the book of Exodus. We've already seen some of the connections. We've already seen how from that opening word, that conjunction, and this story is deeply embedded in the promises made to God's people in Genesis. 
But there's a whole lot more that is throwing us back into Genesis. So let me just give you a few examples. In Genesis 1 verse 4, you remember the creation story? Genesis 1 verse 4, we read, and God saw that it was good. Genesis 1 verse 10, and God saw that it was good. Verse 12, God saw that it was good. Verse 18, verse 21, verse 25, verse 31, and God saw that it was very good. You go to Exodus chapter 2 verse 2, the woman conceived, bore a son, and when she saw that he was good, that's what it says literally, when she saw that he was good, she hid him three months. By using the language of Genesis 1, God wants us to see that the birth of Moses is like a new creation. He gives us another clue in the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and then she put the child in it and placed it amongst the reeds by the river bank. The word for basket there is literally an ark. Moses' mother made an ark, just like Noah made an ark, from the same materials with the same purpose. In Genesis chapter 6, the sin of man was so grievous to God that he remade the world. Through the judgment of the waters, he saved the people for himself. And with those people, he was going to start again. In Exodus, we are seeing something similar. The river Nile was a watery grave for Israel. All those babies drowning. But then God rescues Moses from the water, draws Moses out from the water. He preserves the life of his people by saving this one child. And with him, he will start something new. It's a new creation. Another thing for us to consider is the gender bias in this story. I don't know if you noticed it. Who are the heroes in Exodus? Who does God use to bring salvation to undermine Pharaoh in this early chapter? Women. And not just one woman, five women. The two midwives... Moses' mother, Moses' sister, and even Pharaoh's daughter. Five women. God is making a point. To oppress Israel, Pharaoh is killing the men. To save Israel, God is using the women. It's ironic, but it's more than irony. There's more than irony going on here. Think with me for a moment. Where else do you see a conflict between a crafty male and a seemingly powerless female with with God's people at stake? Where else do you see that? Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was crafty, and he deceived Eve in order to curse humanity. Here in Exodus, Pharaoh is the crafty, shrewd, serpentine figure. But this time, the woman deceive the serpent in order to bless humanity. The roles have been reversed. God is reversing the curse through these women. In Genesis 3 verse 15, God said to the serpent, listen to his judgment on the serpent. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So what we are seeing in Exodus is the latest round of that battle. And with God's help, the woman and her offspring are winning. How appropriate is this message on Mother's Day? When Helen reminded me it was Mother's Day, I just thank God for his providence because we have this wonderful message. On Mother's Day and in Exodus chapter 1, it is just worth us pausing and noting something very important in our cultural moment. The Bible is often, and I'm sure you would have heard this, encountered this, perhaps you've felt it at times, it's often accused of gross chauvinism, of a kind of extreme patriarchy where women don't even really exist. Now that may have been true of parts of ancient culture, but it is certainly not true of God's economy, of God's plan for the world, his plan to save us. In fact, I think you can only arrive at that conclusion of gross chauvinism, extreme patriarchy, if you come to the Bible with a predetermined agenda. Our passage is just one of many that is reminding us of the importance, the central importance of women in God's saving economy. And it's not just this passage. From the first chapter of the Bible to the last chapter of the Bible, the dignity of woman is upheld and affirmed. God loves humanity, and so he loves women. It is no surprise to him that humanity doesn't exist without women. To make us male and female complementary parts of the same whole was actually his idea. If we pay attention, if we read with an open mind, we will see him constantly using ordinary women in extraordinary ways to achieve his purposes. So we mustn't allow our culture to falsely accuse our God of bias towards men. And we certainly mustn't buy into that bias ourselves. Let me just address the men for a moment. Gents, if you treat women as if they are somehow less, worthless, of less dignity, your fight isn't with feminism. Your fight is with God Almighty. And my brothers, that is not a fight we want to pick. One final link between Exodus and Genesis. This is the dominant one, and we've, we've explored it a little bit already. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. Have a look there. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. A little bit uh, more awkward to see in the English, but Moses actually uses seven different words. Seven, the idea of completeness, fullness. Seven different words to describe how abundantly God is blessing Israel. Seven words to hammer home how faithful God was to his promises. And if we were just to focus on the one word, the word multiplied in the English, we see that word all over Exodus 1 from start to finish in different forms. In, different, in one form or another, it's there in verse 7, verse 9, verse 10, verse 12, verse 20. When you see repetition, 
in Hebrew stories, you need to pay attention at that point. Because that's how Hebrew story, it's a device that Hebrew storytellers use for emphasis. They are trying to say something important to us, the reader. They use repetition to do it. What is this important thing that God is telling us? What is he pointing us to? Back to Genesis, chapter 1, verse 28, 27. I'll start there. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish and the birds and every living thing that moves on the earth. Now just think back to the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. To Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into a nation. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. To Isaac, I will multiply you and your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give to your offspring these lands. To Jacob, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. In Exodus 1, God is fulfilling his promise to bless his people and to multiply them, to make them this nation of slaves, to make this nation of slaves into kings and rulers of the whole world. You might not get that from a casual scan of the text in isolation without being aware of the wider context. We have to pay careful attention to what God is saying to us, and that means context. That means understanding the story in its context. We don't rip the verses out of their context and try and understand them on their own terms. Because if we were to do that, we would end up with political economy. You are not going to scan a chapter about slavery and genocide and conclude that God is blessing these people. Right? In fact, you're going to draw the opposite conclusion. You can't lift what God is doing off the surface of the text in isolation. And I think that's very deliberate. Because the same is true for us today. We can't lift the meaning of what God is doing off the surface of our circumstances. We'll say more on that in just a moment. What we want to see for now is the main point of this passage. Here's the main point. In the midst of the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, God is blessing his people and fulfilling his purposes. Let me just say it again. In the midst of the battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, God is blessing his people and fulfilling his purposes. We want to understand what that means for us today. To do that... We have to know how this battle ends. So let me just read for you a few extracts from Revelation. We're jumping to the end of the story. Not a good way to read a novel, but with a Bible it's okay. Extracts from Revelation 12. Listen to this. Listen to the language. And a great sign appeared in heaven. What is this great sign? A woman. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. So that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness. 
Now war arose in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. Let me summarize a complicated chapter of Scripture. The seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, crushes the serpent's head at the cross by the blood of the Lamb. They have conquered him. At the cross, that is where the battle is won. That's the turning point. It's where the battle is won. But the battle finally ends when the Lord Jesus returns to banish the serpent forever. So now we are ready to understand what do we learn from Exodus chapter 1? What is God saying to us? Sorry it's taken so long to get there, but here we have it. Four fairly obvious points. Four fairly obvious points. We are in a battle. There is blessing in the battle. We know who wins, and so we can fight with courage. We are in a battle. There is blessing in the battle. We know who wins, and so we can fight with courage. We're in a battle. Until Jesus comes, the serpent is raging against us. He's raging against the seed of the woman. That's us, the seed of Eve. Do you know that? Is that part of your worldview? I think for many of us, if we're honest, it's just not the case. It's not even on our radar. Either we are in the wrong fight, or we're not in the fight at all. The wrong fight looks like this. I am a slave to my current circumstances. Freedom is liberation from those circumstances. I'm a slave to my income bracket. Freedom is a pay raise. I'm a slave to my singleness. Freedom is in a relationship. I'm a slave to this city. Freedom is in Cape Town or Perth. I'm a slave to my circumstances, and God's job is to give me freedom. Wrong fight. That's like fighting over the color of your life jacket while the ship is going down. It's the wrong fight because our slavery runs so much deeper than our circumstances. We are slaves to sin and death. Your enemy is the serpent, not your boss. Now, I know what you want to say. You want to say they're the same person. Just don't say it out loud, <laughs> especially if you're on the staff at CCM. <laughs> Point is this. Some of us are just in the wrong fight. Others don't even know there is a fight. And for us, Christianity is just an optional part of the middle-class South African package, right? It's there to help you deal with your guilt feelings, to be the best version of yourself in the parts of the week that really matter. It's what you do with your spirituality. It's what you do with your Sunday, so that you can be effective in the other parts of the week that really matter. My friends, do you see how dangerous that attitude is? 
It's like going for a walk in the park while the bombs are falling. In the language of Exodus, it's like a Hebrew mother taking her child, her baby boy, dressing him in his Sunday best, putting him in the pram, and taking him for a stroll past Pharaoh's palace. That is you if you don't know that we are in a fight, a fight for our lives. The Christian life is a battle. It is not a weekly yoga class. We need to know that. We need to have a wartime mindset. Listen to John Piper's confession on this. He's a, he's a Baptist pastor. Very influential. If you don't know who he is, it doesn't matter. This is his confession. I'm wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call earth home. Before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs and using my money just the way unbelievers do. I, be, I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing, missions, unreached people groups just drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do, not to what God can do. It is a terrible sickness. And I thank God for those who have forced me again and again and again toward a wartime mindset. We are in a battle. Secondly, there is blessing in the battle. By that I don't mean that there's the battle and then there's some blessing on the side or afterwards. In a sense, I mean the battle is the blessing. Because that's how God works. It was through the hard labor and the genocide that Israel multiplied. It was through the defeat of the cross that Jesus won the victory. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It is in our weakness that God proves himself strong. It's what he means when he says he will work all things out for our good. What things? Paul tells us in the same chapter, listen to the kinds of things he's going to work out for our good. Trouble, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, even death. Even death he will work out for our good. God will use those things for your good. And what is your good? Again, Paul tells us in the same chapter, your good is becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ. For God, there is nothing more important than that. There is no higher calling. There is no better life. You know what that means for us in this season? It means that COVID will not be wasted. There is blessing in the battle. Thirdly, we know who wins. We could carry on talking about COVID, but I think we, we overdo it. We, we suffer from COVID fatigue, fatigue. We've heard enough. So let me just give you another example. Western civilization is collapsing. It's eating itself alive. I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. It's a pretty mainstream opinion these days. What's interesting is the level of anxiety amongst Christians. 
Anxiety, sometimes anxiety is putting it mildly. For some of us, it is wholesale panic. Now, I can completely understand that reaction, and to be honest, there are times when I share that reaction. But I still think it's wrong. I still think it's a mistake. We do face very real challenges. The post-truth world, the transgender movement, the secular agenda, these are very real challenges. These are battles which have to be fought, and we must fight them. But the level of panic amongst Christians sometimes gives the impression that when the West falls, the gospel falls with it. Western civilization is not the gospel. The church belongs to Jesus Christ, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against him. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed? My friends, this is not the first time God has seen a civilization fall to be replaced by another. Do you think he's anxious about it? China is likely to be the next global superpower. They will export their culture. We see signs of Chinese imperialism all over Africa. It's worth remembering the church has absolutely thrived under communist Chinese rule. Not because of communist Chinese rule is friendly to the church, but because God works all things out for the good of those who love him. And he conforms them to Jesus Christ. So we don't need to panic. We have to fight the fights, but we don't need to do it with an obsessive anxiety. And we need to remember the early church. In so many ways, they lived in a culture like ours, pluralistic, aggressive towards truth claims, a pagan state growing in its hostility towards the faith. And yet, in our historical records, we don't see even a hint of panic. We see a church that willingly suffers and serves with real peace. How did they do it? They remembered who wins in the end. They remembered the God who will bless no matter what. The God who promised to be with us always. The God who turns every defeat into a victory. They could see the end. And it gave them the strength they needed to take the next step. Paul puts it like this. Therefore we do not despair. But even if our physical body is wearing away, our inner person is being renewed day by day. Listen to how he costs living in the first century, which is, looks so similar to ours. This is what he says. For our momentary light suffering is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Because we are not looking at what can be seen but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. Because we know who wins in the end, finally, we can fight with courage. 
Think of those Hebrew midwives. Pharaoh had absolute power over them. Absolute. He had the power to take their livelihood, their property, their freedom, their lives. He could inflict all manner of pain. And still, they did not obey him. Where did they find the courage? They had an even higher allegiance. For them, the stakes were even higher than the wrath of Pharaoh. For them, the stakes were the the wrath of God himself. They knew all too well who wins in the end. Were they special? No. Just ordinary health workers, civil servants, moms, nurses. They weren't special. They were ordinary. But they had extraordinary insight. They could see who wins in the end. My friends, we also live in a hostile world. We live in a world that hates the Christian faith, increasingly hates the Christian faith. The serpent still rages against us. He is still determined to destroy us. But here's the thing. You and I can see so much more than the Hebrew midwives could see because we can see the cross. We know who wins. And so we can fight on in the here and now with courage. Let's pray. Spirit of God, please will you help us to see the spiritual reality all around us. To help us to see that we are in a battle. But help us to know that because... Our Heavenly Father works all things out for the good of those who love Him. That there is blessing in the battle. And help us as we look at the cross to have absolute assurance about who wins in the end. And so give us what we desperately need and what we don't have in and of ourselves. Give us the courage to fight another day as long as it is called today. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Friends, we are coming now to the Lord's table, and it's really fitting because it is such a vivid visual reminder of who wins in the end. So if you can just grab your elements, and then I'll begin. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, of your infinite mercy, you gave your only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who made there at the cross by his one offering of himself, never to be repeated, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, and our sins here this morning, who on the night he was betrayed, took bread, 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the remission of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Won't you bow and let's conclude our service in prayer. Father, we thank you for the wonderful reminder we have of our fellowship with you and our fellowship with one another in the Lord Jesus Christ by his blood, by the giving of his body and his blood on our behalf for our sin to set us free. Thank you, Lord, that... The Lord's table is a wonderful, beautiful picture of Christ's victory on our behalf. We praise you for him, and we pray that his victory would color all that we are and all that we do. Please go with us into this week and help us in our battle against the serpent. Help us this week, Lord, to have the courage to take the next step and to be faithful wherever you've placed us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. That's uh, the start of our series in Exodus. I hope you are richly blessed through the reading and preaching of God's word. We'll carry on next week and for the next seven weeks. um, Looking forward to the journey. Friends, if you would like prayer, please don't rush off. Just stay where you are and someone on staff will come and pray with you. Uh, We have the snap scan. QR codes on the pillars if you'd like to give to God's work here at Christchurch. Otherwise, uh, remember your social distancing and have a blessed week and we'll be back together, God willing, next Sunday. Take care.